There's some people who like to organize, get everything done, you know, have a schedule. That's great. You know, you know what's going on. There's some people who, who just wing it. And they're good at, some are good at winging it. Some aren't as good as winging it. But um, the question is, have we committed our plans to God? And let me just read out of Isaiah 55, 6 to 9 before we begin. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and your thoughts than my thoughts. As we look at this morning, sometimes we forget that God is a little different than us. And we sometimes think, well, God is up there, but I have my own life to live. I'm going to just keep going, make my plans, and do what I want to. And then sometimes God intervenes, maybe through uh, providence. We call it God working through earthly events, an accident, or some trial difficulty in our life. And then we're like, oh, wait a second, God. Maybe you're trying to get a hold of my attention. Or maybe you're kind of the head, hard-headed ones who, you know, you really need a big clonk across the head to, for God to get your attention. And then when he does, it's like, okay, I know that something's going on, and we turn to God, maybe through a prayer request or something, some means, and God gets our attention. And so this morning, just want to, us to consider, have we committed our plans to the Lord? Even in 2021, we, we look at, boy, it's hard to make plans with all that's going on in our world. But that's going to be the theme this morning. But before we begin, let's open in prayer and ask the Lord to bless uh, our message this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth it gives to us. Lord, I thank you for each one here this morning. We pray for those, some who are recovering from surgery. Pray for those who are dealing with a loss of loved ones. For those who are dealing with uh, friends, maybe who are sick or family members. I pray that you would encourage them. Help us this morning as we study your word to understand it and then also to be able to live it. Father, thank you that you have given us the Bible. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to read it, to pray to you and understand that uh, you are real. You aren't just a, a figment of our imagination. You aren't just uh, something that's traditionally sound. But Lord, you are active and alive. And Lord, while we can't see you, we know that you are true. Thank you for the truth that you have revealed through the word, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I ask that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. So if you're open to 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14, and I'm going to read that, and this morning I'll be reading, um, I have the New King James, and I'll also be reading a little bit out of the Holman Christian, uh, just to give you a little different uh, perspective and uh, to hear the words differently. So I'm going to be reading 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And uh, as we begin, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel, a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, 
Go and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel and it reads, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God, killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Think it over, and you will see that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out. Stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God, and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, Wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. As we read that story, it just it's, there's some truths that we'll bring out of that. But I want you to understand this morning that God does not always work in ways that we think he should. Humanly speaking, we have an idea or a plan that we think would be good for our situation. God, this is what you should do. Ultimately, God is in control and chooses the events in our lives that best permit him to be glorified. And that's the challenge because it's about God. It's not always about us. And I know you don't have notes this morning. We'll just have four main points. But let me just give you some background. Second Kings records a history of Israel when the people had rejected the one true God and were following other gods. There was a time during which the nation of Israel was divided into the north, Samaria, and the south, Judah. They had rejected the one true God, and the Lord had allowed them to be attacked by these neighboring civilizations. At that time, what they say is Aram, or the Arameans, were a group of independent tribes living in the area of Syria, north of Israel. And they were enemies to Israel and would come and invade and plunder. And although God had allowed harm to come to the nation, he never forgot Israel or the people or those who are faithful to God. And we see that through the story a little bit. But this morning, we're going to look at four reminders from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. So we're going to look at four reminders. The first one we look at is found in verse 1. Simply put, verse 1, if you're in 2 Kings 5, verse 1 again, it says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now the uh, Holman Christian says a skin disease, and we'll discuss that a little bit, and then um, uses the word leper here. But the first thing we, we understand and learn is that 
God knows our circumstances. God knows our circumstances. Well, some other people don't always. We wonder, oh boy, if you only knew what I was going through. But God does know your circumstances. And we learn here he's a captain of the host of the king of Syria. He was commander of the army of a great king Aram. And it was through Naaman that God had given favor and victory to the Arameans. Naaman was an influential position, yet he possessed a skin disease that affected people's view of him. Interesting, because he had all this victory, he had great position and influence, but yet people probably still talk to about him behind his back. The use of the word leprosy, also clinically known as Hansen's disease, and what occurs is probably not the best translation. There's some words in the Old Testament where they don't know what it was. Leprosy, as we know, or Hansen's disease, was an infectious disease, and it causes the death of nerve endings. So it's not like all of a sudden, oh, my arm just fell off. It's not like, oh, you know, the leper that failed the driver's test because he left his foot on the gas. What occurs is, is that you lose the nerve endings. And so if it's similar to some of the neuropathy, even in diabetes. You walk on a limb or you use your limb, you don't feel it, and say you hit something and starts an injury, and pretty soon the infection, and it keeps on continuing on. But if you were to walk on an ankle that uh, you didn't know was broken, you would cause more damage. It's similar to that, and we understand that. And some of you think, well, I don't like pain at all, you know. But pain, in some respects, is very beneficial to the body to respond in that way. And here, the nerve endings are dead, and so what occurs is sometimes the limbs or digits would fall off because of the danger infection, and it'd get gangrenous, and that's how it occurred. It wasn't just like, oh, I lost my finger. So I want you to understand that. So when they translate the diseases, some of these there, there aren't specific words, so the skin diseases, if you think about a military individual, if he had an injury where he wasn't healing very well, he probably wouldn't have been able to serve that well. So what I'm thinking, it, as we look at in, in my study, it was probably more of a skin disease where sometimes they have discoloring or even a disfigurement, but it, but it wasn't where it wasn't healing. And I don't know if you've been to some other countries or even people have that skin disease, the pigmented, and it's discolored, and they think, oh, no, maybe a viral, it's infectious, and so they can't do anything about it. But he still has full use of his, of his body and his limbs. But you know what? You say, hey, what's wrong with that person? Why is their arm, you know, a different color? Why is, there, you know, why is this face a different color? What's going on? Is there something wrong with them? There might not be anything wrong, but to everyone's view, superficially, that person looks different. And so people talk about him. Oh, he's a great leader. Naaman's a great leader. Look at what he has done, but he has a skin disease. And so they, be defined, they become defined by the position rather than their actually achievements or who they are. And humanly speaking, we're the same way. Sometimes we think of people by maybe the past or the actions, but not by the person. Genuine, kind, courteous. Oh, no, they're seven foot tall, and they play basketball. Oh, no, they're five foot, and, uh, you know, they run really fast. We describe people differently, but to understand at the core of who you are, your identity isn't in that. Your identity is Christ, and so people struggle with that because while man look at on the outward appearance, God looketh at the heart. And God knows our circumstances, what we go through, what we're faced. And here, Naaman, I believe, probably faced some of that, and it affected him. But we also see that in the text it says that 
Naaman was successful. He was in a high-ranking uh, um, position, but was plagued mentally by this physical disorder, and it was unsightly, and he couldn't change his circumstances. But it's a reminder to us that external success does not equate with internal peace. And so God uses this individual Naaman for his glory. And as we see the process, Naaman kind of learns the process as well. So first thing we see, God knows our circumstances. And so it's important to look at that. But secondly, we see here that what takes place is that God can use anyone for his glory. God can use anyone for his glory. As we see here in verses 2 through 5 and also verse 13, it says and states, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. I'm reading now from the New King James. He wa- she wait- waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were to, with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus saith the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then in verse 13, we also see after they get there and Naaman says, I'm not going to do that. If he had, done, if he had given this grandiose plan, maybe I would have followed that. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? There are no limitations or requirements that God places upon who God uses. Sometimes we think, oh, God can't use me. But God chose to use a slave girl and a servant to help someone trust in the one true God. You've got to remember the context here is that at that time, you know, they may have believed in many gods. And so, oh, they had heard the precedent of the God of Israel. Remember, many nations heard of the God of Israel. They had been able to even historically come out of Egypt to cross the Jordan River and great feats of battle. But there's also, as a believer living in the land of Israel, there would have been some depression because why did God, why are we conquered by this nation? What is going on? And so as we understand here the context, what is taking place, God can use anyone. And this little slave girl who is there, and even Naaman, we understand even personality-wise, he probably was not a cruel leader because you see the genuine kindness that is showed by those who are under his command. And in his household, the servant girl, a servant, using the word, my father. That's just a, a very endearing kind. And the prophet Elisha, even how the prophet Elisha, a true prophet, as we think about what has taken place with, in his life, God can use anyone. And it's a bit surprising that Naaman listened to this young servant girl, then went to the king of Aram to, to take a gift to the king of Israel. But the servant later tells Naaman that if the prophet had required him to do something grandiose or even more difficult, he would have done it. We see that in today's society. Okay, if you do this, you can receive these benefits. Maybe if you climb the mountain and go to the guru who's sitting at the peak, then you'll be able to get inner peace and wisdom. But he spoke, but that um, servant spoke and encouraged his master to do what was asked. And Elisha was the prophet that communicated God's truth to the people. He was the instrument of God. And what happens, if you think about God can use anyone for his glory, sometimes, humanly speaking, we think, well, you know, past failures prevent us from thinking that God can use us. Or maybe 
understanding a right relationship with God, you can be used by God. It simply requires obedience on our part. And Christian believers have the testimony of faithfulness of saints who have trusted Jesus in numerous circumstances in the past without fully knowing the outcome. That is one of the beautiful pictures about the Bible is that it isn't just a book of perfect people. They were sinful people. They were people who failed. But yet God used them in spite of that. And as we understand it requires obedience on our parts, Christian believers, as we look at the Bible and allow it to permeate our own lives as we learn about who God is. It's important for us to understand and remember that there are others that God uses that are not perfect. And we must never diminish our usability because we are each made in the image of God. Sometimes we say, God can't use me because of who I am, or because of our position, or our circumstances. But yet every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has value and good or bad. And we must remember that it is not our skills or gifts that God wants. See, humanly speaking, we look at our, our usability. People sometimes think about our value to society. What do you contribute? Oh, you're not a very worthwhile citizen or you don't add anything to society. We look at people and say, oh, you know what? That person's a medical doctor or that person's a CEO of business. Oh, they're really important. Oh, what do you do? You know, you clean up. Oh, you're, you're not as important. And we, we sometimes judge and evaluate. But that's not necessarily the case. Before God, we must understand and remember that it's not our gifts or skills that God wants, but our hearts and being sensitive to leading. Sometimes behind that successful CEO was a father who worked, who sacrificed, who gave his life. And just simply gave everything so that that child could be able to receive that position. And it's important for us to understand that, as someone once said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of great men and women who have gone before. So it's important to, to remember that God can use anyone. And sometimes, whether it's in evangelism, to share the word of God with someone else, discipleship, doesn't matter your training but your willingness to serve and be a part of what God's plan. Next thing we want to look at this morning is seeing that God blesses our faithful obedience. God blesses our faithful obedience. Verse 7 through 11, as we see here, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it is when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And it goes on, and, and here Naaman presents himself, went to his, with his horses and chair, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Let me give you some background. First of all, remember Syria, the Arameans have dominated and have conquered Israel. And so the king of Israel at that time, and as we understand that Naaman had to place his faith in the God of the Israelites. And he goes and follows what was re, um, requested of him by that servant girl, and the king of Samaria, and it was probably Jehoram, 
here he is. He receives the news of, of Naaman coming and then with this gift. And it's, he was probably thinking, what, what can I do? You know, am I supposed to heal him? What happens if I don't heal him? And so being put in that position, I'm sure that he was fearful. But even understanding the spiritual state, it's not like Hezekiah who, who turns to the Lord and prays. What our text says here is that, am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends a man for me to heal him? Oh, he wants to start a fight. Oh, no, he's going to take over the land. Instantly, he looks at his circumstances and thinks, what do I do? And so he tears his clothes, which was this, the sign of mourning. And to put on sackcloth, that's what they would do. But it's interesting because we see a true prophet. The true prophet knows because he would have known that he had put on sackcloth or tore his clothes, literally gone into mourning in the nation. You know, we're going to may have to go to battle. But then he reveals information that wasn't revealed initially. You have, please let him come to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. And all of a sudden, Elisha says, don't worry. God has revealed to me, and this is part of God's plan of honoring himself. And that's the hard part is displaying obedience. Obedience when things are difficult. Because here we see the obedience of a few different individuals. First of all, Naaman to respond but the king gives it over, the king Jehoram, to give it over to Elisha. And as we look at, even in a, on a personal level, our level of faith or our obedience, our level of faith is, is often represented by our actions or by our obedience. Let me repeat that. Our level of faith is often represented by our actions or obedience. Faith in Christ is first seen in salvation. It's not having enough, oh, if I believe enough, something will occur but it's a transfer of trust. Remember, placing our faith in an object worthy of our trust. Repenting of our sins and then believing that Jesus Christ died, that he rose again, and that he is returning, that he can grant eternal life. But Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was that acceptable death. As we learned last week, you know, the substitutionary atonement. But when we ask for forgiveness from our sin and place our faith in him, he is faithful and we can trust him to complete his promise of eternal life. See, salvation includes spiritual growth, praying, reading the Bible. And let me just give you an example of, as we think about praying. Sometimes we pray and we think, does prayer really do anything? Or maybe we just pray when we want something. Bill Bright tells a story. In the 1930s, Stalin ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers in the former Soviet Union. Millions of Bibles were confiscated and multitudes of believers were sent to the gulags, the prison camps, where most died for being enemies of the state. In Stavropol, Russia, this order was carried out with a vengeance. This uh, group, um, Commission Ministry, which Campus Crusade for Christ had sponsored, sent a team to Stavropol. The city's history was not known at that time, but when the team arrived, they were having difficulties getting the Bible shipped from Moscow. Someone mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside the town where those confiscated Bibles had been stored ever since Stalin's day. After much prayer by the team, one member finally got up the courage to go to the warehouse and ask the officials if the Bibles were still there. Sure enough, they were. Then the commission asked if the Bibles could be removed and distributed again to the people at Stavropol. The answer was yes. 
The next day, the team returned with a truck and several Russian people to help load the Bibles. One helper was a young man who was a skeptical, hostile, and agnostic collegian who had come only for the day's wages. As they were loading the Bibles, one team member noticed that the young man had disappeared. Eventually, they found him in a corner of the warehouse weeping. He had slipped away, hoping to quietly take a Bible. What he found shook him to the core. The inside page of the Bible he picked up had the handwritten signature of his own grandmother. It had been her Bible, and out of the many thousands of Bibles still left in that warehouse, he stole the one belonging to his grandmother, a woman persecuted for her faith all her life. No wonder he was weeping. God had just dramatically revealed himself to this young man. His grandmother had no doubt prayed for him and for that city. Her prayers had followed him, and now this young man's life had been transformed by the very Bible his grandmother held so dear. Obedience, simply understanding prayer. Can God use you? Absolutely. Commit your prayers and your actions to the Lord and that faithful obedience. You know, God blesses our faith, obedience, as we grow in that relationship. The closest picture we have of this is seen in the biblical marriage. You know, this involves a husband and wife who must trust each other completely to be faithful to one another in love and life. You know, there's great security in marriage, and there's great difficulty when someone betrays or acts in a way that tests that trust relationship. Just as we are stewards with our money and resources, we're also stewards of trust in our relationships. But trust requires accountability. That is because in the same way that each husband and wife is accountable to one another, we're accountable to God. God will test and discipline believers, but also blesses our faithfulness. See, however, we must never lose sight that our faith is placed in another. You can't say, I just believe. But when you place your faith and trust in someone, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, I trust that Jesus Christ, when I die, um, he will give me grant eternal life. But the only way to complete, fulfill that is by dying. That's the hard part. But until then, how do we behave and how do we, how do we continue to show faith? As we look here, it is important because we must never lose sight that our faith is placed in another. And as our, level, as our level of trust does not affect the faithfulness of Jesus, our obedience must not waver based upon our emotions. See, sometimes our level of trust is like this. Sometimes we trust a lot, sometimes we don't trust at all. But it shouldn't be based upon our emotions, it's based upon the person and work of who Jesus is. Same way as another person. Are they trustworthy? You know, some people, as I've mentioned before in your families, you know, oh yeah, I'll lend you $100 or $50, no problem. There's some people you won't lend. Others you just say, you know what, I don't do lending, I'll just give you money because I don't plan on seeing it back. But understand... Our lack of faith does not affect where we have placed our faith and consequently does not affect the security of our faith. Our relationship with Jesus is different than a human relationship because we are, not, we are required to display faith in God on a daily basis. But as we grow in our understanding of God, he doesn't become more trustworthy. It's not all of a sudden, oh, God increases in his trustworthiness. We're the ones who learn who God is and so we become more faithful, more understanding of who God is. Sometimes we think, you know, credibility of someone builds in our, our mind, and, but they haven't changed. It is we who change. So as we go through persecution, as we go through trials, difficulty, 
our obedience helps us understand who God is. And actually, it helps us understand who we are. That is some of the benefits of that. And so, testing in our lives displays our accountability to God, but also reaffirms our beliefs of God's character. So we must not lose sight of where our faith lies in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we remember that, we can actively obey God when it's hard, when God asks us or requires difficult things in our life. If you were here during the Bible class, you know, understanding if someone who has lost a child, this couple who were serving in missions and they lost a child and they were asking the question, is Jesus worth it? Is it worth it? Jesus, you've taken away our, our child. Is serving you worth it? And it's interesting, you know, that statement, before resurrection, there always has to be a, a crucifixion. And without eternal life, you know, there has to be a penalty, a punishment that has been satisfied, that's paid by Jesus Christ. And that was in our place. So our faithful obedience, learning how that, and as we look at the text, Naaman had to place his faith in God of the Israelites. And as he moves forward and goes through and to fulfill these plans, he stands out the, outside the door of Elisha and thinks, you know, it says, I like how the wording is because it says that he's outside the door with his chariot and he stood there with his horses. So think about a battle regiment outside his door. Okay, we're here, you know. And the closest picture I could give you is kind of like a parade. They used to have the parades after World War II, after different militaries. You'd have everyone out. There's a display of nationalism. They have it in other countries. And so it's like a, a wonderful picture. You have this military might. And so they're out there. And Naaman probably expects to be treated by a high military authority that he is. But what happens? Does the prophet come out? No, he sends a, a low-level messenger. Go and wash in the Jordan. And he's incensed. Naaman is incensed. Like, I can't believe he did that to me. Does, doesn't he know who I am? And Jordan, the Jordan River, you've got to understand, if you've seen pictures of the Jordan, it's a high, fast running, deep, but it's muddy. It's not like, oh, I don't want to get a drink out of the Jordan River. Ooh, it's clean and clear. It's dirty. It's muddy. Think about the Colorado River when the wa washes and the water runs through it. You wouldn't want to drink that. But that's what it was. And that's where he says, aren't these rivers in Syria much cleaner and purer? Drink out of the Jordan. But yet, the obedience that is required, that faithful obedience. And guess what? God blessed him and God used him. Next thing we see is the fourth thing is that not only does God bless our faithful obedience, but God requires a heart of humility. God requires a heart of humility. Verse 13 and 14. He says, and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he says this, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Even in a position of authority, but yet he demonstrated humility. Salvation. To believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he rose again, who he is, requires a person to humbly admit their sin, the repentance of sin, and then understand their need for salvation, for Jesus Christ. And I believe that Naaman was a man of character because as we see the evidence of the servants they possess, the servant girl even willing to tell Naaman, and then this other servant saying, would you do this? 
I don't think they would have responded that way if uh, Naaman was a man who didn't treat others fairly. But Naaman was in a position of authority, and yet he listened and acted upon the advice of the servant girl. But if he didn't obey, I don't think that he would have been healed. And we see Elisha, the influential, and he takes the least amount of credit. He isn't even really in the picture. He just, first of all, he tells the king, hey, don't worry, I got this. That's kind of my translation. King Jehoram, don't worry, I got this. God told me what to do. And then he sends a messenger out, go do that. Go tell Naaman to do that. So he, he doesn't even receive any credit. And this is, if you think about the story of Elisha, you want some excitement, you know, read about the, the escapades and, of Elisha in 2 Kings, just some of his miracles and things that have taken place. And so all of a sudden, we see what takes place. Elisha is the most influential, and he doesn't take any credit. And we see this man of God, truly a man of God, who has communication with God. But Elisha refuses the gift that was offered. If you look at verse 15 and 16, it says, Then Naaman, he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides and his entourage, if you will, and came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. It would have changed the whole picture of the work of God. God cannot be bought. God does things on his own terms. And it's important for us to understand that. And it doesn't change the heart of gratefulness. Naaman was truly grateful, but it would, have, it would not have been an offering. It would have been already like a payoff. And so understanding that, we see here what takes place. And this was not some small gift. I just want you to understand that picture of small gift. If you go to the next slide, and as we see here, the value that was placed. Ten talents of silver in the King James. I read it in the Holman Christian, so you understand. 750 pounds of silver, six pieces of gold, which was 150 pounds of the gold, and then the ten changes of clothing. And it just wasn't like nice clothing. Oh, here you go. Here's some pants that I got off of Facebook Marketplace, you know, some clothes. Changes of clothes, what that literally means is some royal robes would have been expensive clothes. As we go to the next uh, slide, kind of gives you, this is how much it was, and present day value, that's actually, I was doing some current rates, because that was done a little bit earlier, and now with the change of price of gold and silver, the current rate, for 27 ounces, um, 20, it's $27 per ounce silver, so it comes out to be 324000 now for the silver. That's how much it's gone up. I was like, oh, should have bought gold and silver a few years ago. But um, anyway, gold at eighteen forty an ounce, that's what it was yesterday. It's now 4416000 so it's almost doubled in price. And, and so as, as we look at that gift, it would have been 4416000 You add those together, it's almost $5 um, million. That has $3 million. And, um, it says $3 billion, but what happened is I, I added in there next the suit. Because I was thinking, how do you compare a change of clothes? What's the most expensive change of clothes? Well, I looked up, and um, if you, I, I'm not sure if it's on the next slide, but the most expensive suit in the world, there's only three of them, is almost $900,000. So, I mean, it's like, you want to buy a, a million-dollar suit? But you get a few of those. But anyway, the gift, I want you to understand, this was a very expensive gift that was given. 
incomprehensible even at today's level. But this is in the Old Testament. But we understand here, my point as I want you to understand is that it wasn't about the gift because it wasn't about the financial remuneration. What it was about is a God declaring his glory in the way that he chose. And he used people to accomplish that task. And it really wasn't even about the healing of Naaman. He received a blessing, but it was the fact that God, there was a God in Israel, reaffirmed to the people that he was the God of the Old Testament, the God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, who had delivered them from their enemies throughout the time of the judges and was still God, and they could turn to God. Even though they were suffering under the um, persecution of the Aramaeans, and they were conquered, that God was still there and available and could do them, to help them. And then also the nation of Aramaeans, they understood that there was a God who was the one true God. And so a lesson for us as we think about is that we should never be independent of God. We should never be independent of God because we must seek guidance from God and from others who are spiritually mature in everything we do. Prayer is a priority because it reflects our humble position. As we look at, God requires a heart of humility. Humanly speaking, we have a tendency to be pride. And pride is the root of every sin. Pride is what gets each of us in trouble. There's an aspiring young lawyer who was sitting in his office one late, late one night when Satan appeared to him. The devil said to the lawyer, I have a proposition for you. You can win every case you try for the rest of your life. Your clients will adore you. Your colleagues will stand in awe of you. You will make embarrassing amounts of money. All I want in exchange is your wife's soul, your children's souls, the souls of your parents, grandparents, and the souls of all your friends and law partners. The lawyer ponders this for a moment and then finally asks, so what's the catch? Understanding, you know, the, anyway. As, as we look at pride and humility, we must become before God and understand that God is God and we aren't. And as we think about plans for the future, both our eternal destiny and our near future, have you, first of all, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for eternal life? Because otherwise you are going to be separated eternally from God. And there will be a time of punishment. But also your plans. We make plans for our children, for our retirement, for our work. But we never include God in those plans. Consider what do you have for me? And so that priority of prayer, it reflects our humble position. When God is first, our lives will demonstrate our dependence upon God. And we must not be concerned what others think of us, only what God thinks of us. And when this occurs, it is not a weakness, but a strength. It helps us become a man or woman of true godly character. We do not always understand what God is doing in our lives. I'll grant you that. There's times when in our lives when we don't understand, God, what are you doing? God, this hurts. God, everything's going well. Oh, no, what's coming next? God, why did you allow this to happen to our family? But there must be a priority of God directed decisions in our lives, in the good, in the bad. Sometimes we live like a wave. But the goal is to live a Christ-centered life. I've always said, remember, the spiritual life is not like a trajectory moving up. It's kind of like an EKG. Sometimes highs, sometimes there's lows. But the goal is to stay center, close in our relationship with God. 
and understand that there must be a priority of God-directed decisions in our life. When things come into our life, prayer first. God, help me to respond in a way which will honor and glorify you. Our actions directly reflect our hearts. Friends and family learn about the character of God when we trust in God and not in our own strengths or abilities. They learn that we can trust Jesus in every circumstance, even when we're unsure of the future. True humility helps prevent us from sin and disobedience to God. And that's the question I want to leave with you this morning and to understand. Have you committed your plans to God? And let me close with this. I just want to read Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 one more time. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is still God when things are going well, when things are difficult. And his ways that he works are different from what we would do it. We often think, oh, I would do it a different way. But God, in his superior knowledge and understanding, has a plan and purpose for your life. And when we submit our will and our lives to him, I believe that we can honor and glorify him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for your work in our lives. Lord, thank you for permitting us to study your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Lord, if there be someone here who's never placed their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day they would understand. Simply understanding that to admit they're a sinner, call out repentance, and to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you can know for sure that you have eternal life. But there's also here, people here this morning that have made a faith-based relationship with Christ. And they've known Christ. And they, they don't really haven't put him first place. I pray that you would help today make that decision. There's some young people here this morning who, who really haven't understood or, or have learned what it means to have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. How can I know him when I can't see him? To understand the faithfulness, to talk, to ask to look at the testimony of others' believers. Let me assure you that Jesus Christ is worth it, to live for him. Is it always easy? No. Are there going to be times of maybe embarrassment, of failure, of weakness? Absolutely. But you're not alone. And while the world wants to puff you up, maybe build up your ego, they'll also drop you in a moment, in a heartbeat. And those people that call them friends, they won't be there. But God is faithful and will be there, always available, forgiving, loving. And the way he chooses to work in each of our lives is different because he knows where you're at. And I just pray this morning as the piano plays that you would submit yourself, your plans to God. Whatever he has for you, it's not easy. It might be working in your life to, to serve, to participate, to be a part of the local church. Maybe it's in salvation to give your, give your life and heart to God. Maybe it's the obedience of baptism. Maybe it's to follow and serve God in, in whatever capacity he chooses for your life. Maybe it's to talk to your neighbor, a coworker, a friend, 
who you've been fearful of because you're worried about that relationship. 